For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, I'll talk with one of my heroes, Captain Sulu, better known as George Takei, one of the most popular voices on social media. Visit an urban farm in Tucson that is doing more than grow organic vegetables. And listen to members of the Reveille Men's Chorus tell about what keeps them singing. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Today, a generation who may have never even seen an episode of classic Star Trek knows George Takei well. He has millions of followers on Facebook and Twitter, where he comments on politics and social issues, and stands up to prejudice with strength, a wry wit, and a voice that is tempered by experience. Now age 79, George Takei spent three years of his childhood as a prisoner of the United States government. As many as 120,000 Americans of Japanese ancestry were held in prison camps during the Second World War following the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. This period of history, informed by the personal testimony of Takei's parents, was explored in the Broadway musical called Allegiance, which closed earlier this year. Next Tuesday, December 13th, A filmed performance of Allegiance is being screened at more than 500 movie theaters in the United States and Canada, including five in our area. This gave me a chance to talk with George Takei about the musical's message, one that he feels is now more timely than ever, almost 75 years later. It's a story that not enough Americans know about. We live in a climate now where uh, I think it's very chilling. What happened to us, Japanese-Americans, innocent people who had nothing to do with Pearl Harbor, and here I'm talking to you on December 7th, but we happen to be of Japanese ancestry. We look like the enemy, and for that, we were locked up in barbed wire prison camps for the duration of the Second World War. And that we made into a musical. We tell the story in terms of uh, two love stories. This is inside a barbed wire U.S. prison camp. There was one white nurse to look after us, and this young Japanese-American man falls in love with her. It's a forbidden love. And this young man goes and fights for this country as a U.S. soldier from behind those U.S. barbed wire fences and comes back one of the most decorated Japanese-American soldiers of the entire Second World War. But his older sister falls in love with a young law student who was yanked out of law school and imprisoned. And he knows his constitutional rights, and he resists going to fight for this country as an internee. He says, if I can fight as an American, I will go. And that means reporting to my hometown draft board with my family back home. But I will not go as an internee, leaving my family in imprisonment. Our allegiance was challenged, but also the allegiance of this country to its democratic ideal was challenged. And so we uh, filmed that stage play, Broadway musical, and uh, that's going to be screened on December 13th. 
here in Tucson, um, there was an internment camp on uh, Mount Lemmon. How old were you when your family was taken to the camp? I had just turned five years old, and a few weeks after that uh, was when the, the soldiers came to get us. That is a horrific age to have that happen, because at the age it, of five, you're, you're really forming memories that you're going to have for the rest of your life. Oh, yes, I have memories. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, the barbed wire fence that we were confined uh, behind. I remember the tall sentry towers with the machine guns pointed right at us. And I remember the searchlight that followed me when uh, I made the night runs from our, bar- our barrack to uh, the uh, latrine. But, you know, it's five-year-old me. I thought it was nice that they lit the way for me to pee. So, you know, my memories are very real, but quite different from that of my parents. You know, I went to school in a black tar paper barrack, and we began every school day with the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. That's where the title comes from, Allegiance. You know, I could see the barbed wire fence and the sentry towers right outside my schoolhouse window as I recited the words, with liberty and justice for all. Too young to understand the stinging irony behind those words uttered behind barbed wire fences. How did your parents try to explain what was happening to your family to you at that age? Were they, were they frank and honest with you, or did they try to protect you from the real truth? They tried to protect us. In fact, I remember my father telling us that we were going for a long vacation to a place called Arkansas. And so I thought it was a vacation. I, you know, we didn't have too many vacations in the first five years of my life, and certainly for my baby sister. You know, she, she spent practically 90% of her uh, early life in an internment camp. And there were two more in Arizona besides the one that uh, you say is near Tucson. Yes. One was called Gila, and that was on an Indian reservation, and the other one was called Poston. They're both on, on that blazing, blistering hot desert. Can you imagine? I mean, you as an Arizonan, in the summertime. I don't want to imagine In that. a black top of the barrack. That was cruel and inhuman torture of innocent people. Can you share with us a way that your fellow Japanese Americans found a way to unite and to somehow lessen the suffering that you were experiencing? Well, as a matter of fact, uh, the internment was uh, something that fractured the community and, in many cases, the family. The uh, family that we uh, depict in allegiance, the younger brother goes to fight for this country. The older sister uh, falls in love with this resistor. Uh, the law student, and they resist the uh, uh, imprisonment. And so they symbolically represent uh, what happened to the entire community. So let me ask you, George, one question that may come to someone's mind upon hearing your story is saying, why would you want to do a musical? You know, initially I envisioned it as a drama, Mm -hmm. but uh, our composer lyricist convinced me, and I do think he was right, Music has the power to hit the heart deeply, profoundly, in ways that words can't. But the other thing that music does is, you know, Japanese Americans tend to be rather stoic. They contain their emotions. And the song gives us the opportunity to reveal what they're feeling inside. 
that in a community they might suppress and hold inside. So musical was the ideal way to tell the story. I noticed in some of the material that I received from Fathom Productions that you're making an offer to lawmakers, politicians, legislators who are in office to come and see Allegiance for free. Um, What do you hope that these men and women come out of that theater with after seeing the production? Well, the reason why we were uh, in prison was, you know, the country was uh, swept up in war hysteria, and the elected officials equally got swept up in that. And people who knew the Constitution and knew the law, because, you know, some of them were ambitious hypocrites, and the president of the United States, Franklin Roosevelt, signed an executive order ordering all Japanese-Americans on the West Coast to be summarily rounded up with no charges, no trial, no due process. And so elected officials have a grave responsibility And we want to remind them of this history by inviting them to be our guests, to come see Allegiance for free as our guests. And we will feel amply paid if they learn from this and put a stop to all this talk of a Muslim registry, because that's the way it happened for us. There was initially a Japanese-American registry, and then that turned into the curfew on Japanese-Americans. And then we discovered that our bank accounts were frozen. Hmm. Our life savings was taken away from us. And then the internment came, and the soldiers came to our home to order us out. So we know when they start dropping hints or flying trial balloons about Muslim registry, we know what they're thinking about. And so we want to remind them of our history and to prevent that sort of thing from ever happening again in the United States. George Takei's Allegiance is being screened across the country at 7.30 p.m. one night only, next Tuesday, December 13th. The venues include three theaters in Tucson, one in Sierra Vista, and one in Surprise, Arizona. Fathom Events is the presenter. We have a link to their website with a list of participating theaters and ticket information, on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. If you are a public radio listener, especially to this show, chances are you've heard stories about urban farms recently. Today, Vanessa Barchfield takes us to another one, Felicia's Farm, to explain why this one is a little bit different. My name is Sophia Montes. We are at Felicia's Farm. Felicia's Farm is nestled on a plot of land just off of River and Dodge on Tucson's north side. Sophia runs the farm along with Ashton Inskeep. I'm Ashton Inskeep, the volunteer coordinator. Two other staff members and a team of volunteers. Everything grown here is organic. They have chickens and goats and they make their own compost. In most ways, Felicia's farm is like any other urban farm around the country. But it's unique in one important way. What's grown here doesn't end up at farmer's markets. The main purpose of the farm is to feed and help people in need. Sophia and I are in the farm's truck now, heading to the Casa Maria soup kitchen, where all of the fruits and veggies from Felicia's farm will be donated to Tucson's neediest. We're all about 
giving away everything we produce, so we don't sell a single thing. We're 100% donated stuff. That includes all our vegetables, um, all of our eggs. Like if you go to Casa Maria and you see what is usually donated, it's a lot of processed food. It's a lot of like breads and carbs and just things that are not necessarily the healthiest choice. And so we want to be able to give people um, supermarket or you know, or even sometimes even better quality food in my opinion because it's all organic and sustainably grown and harvested that day. It's about as fresh as you can get without having it in your own backyard. Located on Tucson's south side, Casa Maria hands out about 600 sack lunches each day and gives out bulging grocery bags of food that's donated from grocery stores around town. Most of Felicia's farm's veggies get distributed in those bags and go to families. Today, Sophia has just about 60 pounds to donate, but during peak growing times of the year, as much as 600 pounds of fruit and vegetables go to Casa Maria each week. Bye, Sophia. Bye, Thank Brian. You. Thank Thanks you. Really, uh, <laughs> of course. This is a farm that began six years ago with a mission. I'm David Cutler, and I am the founder of Felicia's Farm. David started the farm on a four-acre plot behind his house, but he's not a farmer. He's a certified public accountant. And I own a national and international tax practice. When I go meet him at his east side office, I'm expecting to find someone dressed in a suit and tie and maybe slicked back hair, clean shaven. But instead, he has flowing wiry hair and a long gray beard. He's wearing baggy jeans and flip flops and fringes of the Jewish tzitzit hang down below his shirt. He looks like he belongs on a kibbutz more than in this accounting office. Felicia was David's wife. Um, I met my wife on a tour to Israel when I was 16. You know, we were going to camp together and we met and fell in love. And, you know, she was my high school sweetheart. And, um, you know, it was just a great relationship. Felicia was from Tucson, so David came here for college and eventually they got married, had kids. She just, you know, she just helped everybody. I mean, she was, you know, she was the carpool every all the kids wanted to be in. Um, she helped at the synagogue. She helped at the school. I mean, she was always running to help anybody who was less fortunate. She just, she just did. Felicia had health problems for many, many years and ultimately was diagnosed with a rare immune disease called Bichette's. The Cutlers traveled around the country for her care, but she got sicker and sicker. She passed away June 6, 2009, and I woke up one morning a couple months later and I, you know, I was trying to think of a way to you know, honor the memory of, of, of Felicia. And I thought, what better way to honor her but to go ahead and have a farm and have people come and, and help out and to feed the hungry. And, you know, the farm is, is very much her and the way it's grown. One of the ways it's grown is with the help of the community. A lot of people come to Felicia's farm to help out. Sometimes farm volunteers who knew Felicia lend a hand, but the vast majority don't have a connection to her. They come for many different reasons, says Ashton, the volunteer coordinator. Yesterday we just had a Girl Scout troop come. They painted the shed <laughs> and they did some weeding. A lot of times it's uh, just sort of a mixed bag for who comes. We have U of A students, we have um, a high school group that comes twice a week. Um, we have Mormon missionaries that come a lot, um, retired people, all sorts of people. We're very relaxed about volunteering. There's no um, orientation or anything. It's, it's just come as you want, as long as we're open. <laughs> One thing they're not relaxed about is planning. Sophia, the farm manager, says she puts a lot of thought into what she grows. I try really hard to grow things that I think are culturally relevant or accessible to people. 
The most exotic thing we have right now is bok choy. <laughs> but that's pretty mild and I feel like people can use it, you know, in a lot of different ways. Um, but yeah, I don't want someone to get something in their grocery bag and then be like, what do I do with this? Like, what is this? I don't know. Sophia continues her work and nearby, a Russian woman named Angelina shows up to milk the goats, as she does twice a week. She doesn't speak English, but she coos to the goats in her native tongue and pets them behind their horns. They love it because they can't reach there. So. That's Ashton again, introducing me to the goats. Her name's Godalis, goddess of the goats. <laughs> this is Juana. This is Lucy. That's Lupita. Across the farm in the chicken coop, this is our chicken mansion. The chickens are doing what chickens do. Every chicken lays about an egg every 17 hours. Those eggs also end up at Casa Maria, about 130 dozen of them each week. The farm recently got chicks, too. I love the little chicks down. I ask Ashton what she likes most about her job. I worked on a very fancy goat farm before this. Uh, north of San Francisco, we sold cheese at $30 a pound. Totally different clientele, you know, selling to super rich people. And it just seemed like there's a lot of other people you can affect with food and that need it more. And the donation part's beautiful. To be able to give to people who don't have fresh food, access to vitamins, um, or fresh eggs, so. Yeah, it makes me feel good. <laughs> David, the founder, says it makes him feel good, too. And this is just the beginning. He wants to get fresh produce to more of Tucson's hungry and to get people outside with their hands in the soil. That's the thing. Felicia's farm is more than an urban farm. And it's doing more than feeding the hungry. It's just really, it's everything. It's family and charity and caring and helping that... You know, that Felicia, you know, that was that was really Felicia's life. And she uh, and it's being it's being, you know, relived daily on the property. And and it makes me feel very good every day when I go out there and I see all the goodness that it creates. That story was produced by Vanessa Barchfield. If you'd like to learn more about the soup kitchen that Felicia's farm donates its produce to, check out the latest issue of Edible Baja, Arizona, for Vanessa's story about Casa Maria. Southern Arizona is made up of many voices. Some are heard more often than others. And this next story, produced by Mitchell Riley, will hear the harmonious sound of a Tucson group that is changing lives through music, the Reveille Men's Chorus. We start with a warm-up, and then we get right into the music. My name is Sean Cullen, and I'm the artistic director of Reveille Men's Chorus. Off in the distance, pirate ship, off in the distance. Maybe you've just had a really wonderful weekend with your pirate, okay? And you don't know yet what's gonna happen. So you're still in that hole. Could, could be, could be a wonderful life together, right? You don't know that that pirate is a hooker. <laughs> He 
there is this creative, eclectic feel that Reveille has. We can do things that are completely campy and total fun, and then we can go and sing really legitimate choral music. Iris, make me happy. And pause there, because there'll be a moment of, what did they just say? <laughs> okay? One, three. Oh, say can you Reveille Men's Chorus is a community chorus of gay men, bisexual men, transgender men, straight men. We have doctors, we have attorneys, we have students, we have teachers from ages 20 to ages 70. We run the full gamut of community members. I work really hard to create a balance within the rehearsals so that it is fun and entertaining, but there's also an understanding that people are here to make really great music, and really great music takes a lot of focus and a lot of time and effort. Right, don't push. If we push, we go brain and suddenly we're vacuuming the Star Spangled Banner. We don't want to do that. We want to make sure that we're brave. And if we push on that note, it's very- I am Rob Groves, singer with Reveille Men's Chorus, and I am a professor of classics at the University of Arizona. All throughout, I would say, junior high school and high school, I, um, I was very conscious never to be myself. To, to bottle up whatever I was genuinely feeling and putting on the face that wouldn't give people an opportunity to mock, to, to sort of find a way inside the armor, so to speak. And, um, and obviously that's, that's a very hard way to live, to constantly be on guard. I never found friends and found acceptance as quickly as I did here in Tucson, and I attribute that solely to Reveille. This chorus is a tool for acceptance and for support that um, I don't know anything else like. My name is Andrew Campbell, and I am the bass section leader for the chorus. Oh, I love to sing. I absolutely love to sing. I've been singing since I was a little boy. I grew up in the um, Pentecostal church and sung in a choir all throughout my um, youth. Hear me calling out your name. I feel no shame. I'm in love. Sweet love, don't you ever go away. It will always be this way. This will be a full decade that I have been out, um, and it has been amazing. It's, it feels like a weight has been lifted off my shoulders as a result. And I can actually be who I am, my true authentic self. It was something that I had been looking for when I moved to Tucson in 2008 and really was having a hard time finding it. It wasn't until I joined Reveille is where I found the community of men that were very supportive and accepted me and loved me for who I was. Good, but we kind of went like this. 
<laughs> Didn't we? It was kind of like a, a jazz hand moment there. <laughs> My name is Mark Rosenbaum. Both Bruce and I were members of Reveille starting back in the late 90s, and we left for a while. I am a bass. My name is Bruce Cameron, and I'm another bass. We tend to do things together uh, in the chorus, and we started out as baritones, and uh, unfortunately, as we got older, the voices got lower, and they needed bass singers, so. We are married. I'd like to believe that we've um, advanced as a society where it doesn't matter as much. We're just two men that are married. Obviously, if you do the math there, we're gay, but we don't have to be gay men anymore. We're just a family. We care about people that have lost their job or are struggling. We go and sing in a chorus. We go and buy our groceries at Safeway. We look for bargains. Um, we struggle financially from time to time, just like any family does. It depends on where you come from. It depends on where you are. It depends on who you choose to be. Um, I've been out my whole life and I've never allowed um, anybody's disapproval of who I am to get in my way. And if people um, were offended by that, I made it very clear that that wasn't something that I needed to worry about to live my life as a proud man. For us, music has always been uh, something that uh, binds us together because as we work on it, it's something personal for us. We put ourselves into it. You and me together? Mm. You and me together, that's how it always should be. One without the other don't mean nothing to me, nothing to me. We are bound together in this way that's very intense because um, we all choose to be here, right? I mean, there's a million other things I could be doing on a Monday night, but I make the decision to come here and be part of this amazing thing with this group of people. And that transcends any other boundaries of age or status or wealth or whatever, uh, that just, all that fades away. It's soul affirming. I don't know how else to describe it. It just, it makes, my heart smile. That story was produced by Mitchell Riley for Arizona Illustrated. You can see the television version on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. Our production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.